Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, Surrey Mayor Brenda Locke joins us to discuss her city's controversial policing transition. Plus, from weekend violence in Chinatown to a potential increase in fees and property taxes, Vancouver Mayor Ken Sim joins us to talk about the city's direction and take your calls. And the B.C. government allows rental increases of up to 3.5% for 2024. Shouldn't the market decide? That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. in mid-July when the B.C. government ordered Surrey to continue the transition to the Surrey Police Service. The government also announced a special representative, Jessica McDonald, to represent the provincial government and to help with that transition. Well, since that time, little of anything has been said. Where are we and what's the real cost of the transition? Well, joining me now to discuss the issue is Surrey Mayor Brenda Locke. Mayor Locke, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Jazz. Great to be on your show. Uh since that announcement uh, in July uh, by the provincial government, which, where they said that they wanted to go ahead uh, and make that transition towards the Surrey Police Service, uh, where are we in this transition? Well, um, we're not very far, <laughs> sadly. Um, we haven't uh, seen a lot of progress forward, and uh, that's been that's been disappointing. Um, but. Uh, you know, there's been enormous challenges for us at the city, and uh, I think the biggest one is that we don't have a clear path forward from the province. Certainly the RCMP, the SPS, and I can tell you the city of Surrey have been asking for that plan, but we all have no plan, no path forward. So uh, I just want to clarify this. This is like a feasibility study, a business plan, a cost-benefit analysis. Is that what we're talking about here? Well, that's partly it. I mean, we know that the process from the get-go was never properly done, but one must assume that in order for the uh, Solicitor General and his staff to make the decision that they made, they must have done some due diligence, and I have been asking them. I asked them personally. I did have one meeting with the uh, Solicitor and his staff after the um, decision, uh, we should be getting something back from them. We have got nothing. We don't know why they made the decision, and we don't know what is their what is their path forward. Uh, I have written them. I have written them now six letters, both to uh, uh, the solicitor, the premier, and um, and their um, the person that's doing the work for them is Jessica McDonald, and I have received nothing. Uh, so I don't know. Um, why? I think it's uh, incredibly disrespectful, but I haven't heard back from any of them about what is the plan, what is the path forward. It's really um, important also, though, people have to understand these aren't unilateral decisions. It's not just for the province to say, go Surrey, go make a new police department. This is legal contractual agreements between the provincial government and the federal government and the city. But the two biggest components of that are really the province and the feds. Mm -hmm. And we haven't got any uh, new information about how we're going to deliver any of that. Uh, Just to confirm, how many letters have you sent since that announcement came uh, in in July? Six. Um, I've sent six to either, either one of the three of them. And they're really outlining some of the questions that we have that... That certainly I have as a mayor, but uh, questions that we need for our staff to start to move forward. Certainly on the financial piece, we don't know um, 
We've asked for indemnity because we know what our contractual agreements are with the RCMP. We don't know what they are uh, going to look like, what our, our finances are going to look like with the SPS, and we need to, uh, to talk about that. And I can only hope and assume that um, the uh, Solicitor General and his staff canvassed all that information prior to making this decision. So that's what we're asking for. Uh, what information can you provide us? Mayor Locke, I'm just trying to understand this, whether it's your administration or the one before yours, uh, when you're moving forward on, a, on such a big transition like this, one assumes a feasibility study has been done. A business plan has been put together. I know there was the OPAL report that talked about the transition being about $40 million. And I know in a, in, in a city report saying that uh, it's going to be significantly more. In fact, uh, over a five-year projection, I think the low estimate was $135 million and potentially even higher than that. I, I get that. But are you telling me that there's been no business plan by the city prior to you being mayor whatsoever? I mean, if you're going to move forward on something like this, you need a business plan. You need a feasibility study. You need a recruitment plan. All that has to be done before you say, you know what, we're going to move forward with the transition from RCMP to, to municipal policing. You're telling me none of that was done on the municipal level at all? Well, some of the HR plan with the uh, two police departments, the RCMP and the SPS, that was certainly, some of that was done with the what was called the trilateral. Um, so that has been done, although it has not been adhered to, the uh, the HR plan as uh, presented. Mm -hmm. But we are still working, Jazz, on the 2019 plan as I understand it because I haven't seen anything else from the Surrey Police Service or from the province that would identify anything new other than what was in that plan, uh, which is almost four and a half years old. Mm -hmm. um, and, of course, with all of that, those costs... Um, those cost indicators in that plan are right out the window in, in 2023. Those numbers are guesstimates at best. So uh, it, it, are you saying also that the, the province made this decision without any uh, due diligence? I mean, they spent a lot of time studying uh, the impact on potentially SPS hiring and taking away RCMP officers here in Metro Vancouver and, and other parts of British Columbia. But are you telling me that there was no business plan for the ministry uh, to study, you know, feasibility study, there's, there's nothing right now? Well, if there was one, I have certainly asked for it time and time again to, um, to the Premier and to um, the Solicitor General, and we haven't received anything. So my guess is that they made it or they don't want to share the information, and I'm unclear why they haven't been able to provide us with, with that information, but certainly uh, we haven't received it. And and by the way, Jazz, mm -hmm. we haven't received the $150 million that they said they were going to provide us. So I have lots of questions around uh, finances. We are, as I'm sure lots of cities, are heading into our budget consultation process time. Uh, in Surrey, it's going to commence to the public on September the 23rd. We're going to be talking to our to the public and our taxpayers about costs, and so these are are important numbers for us to have. And right now, we're in a very uh, challenging position because we haven't seen anything from the province. My guest is Surrey Mayor Brenda Locke. Back after the break. Welcome back to the show. Uh, if you're just joining us, we are speaking to Surrey Mayor Brenda Locke. We are talking about uh, policing, which has been an ongoing issue uh, for that community. Uh, Mayor Locke, uh, right now, correct me if I'm wrong here, uh, this police transition is costing Surrey taxpayers about 
$8 million a month, $250,000 a day. Um, from what you've been saying, certainly what you said prior to the break, this is on. This is an ongoing issue. It doesn't look like any headway has been made. There's been no movement. Yet Surrey taxpayers are still paying for two police forces, essentially. Um, it's, it's very concerning to me. We have been uh, burning through money since last December. And, you know, at that time when uh, our team was elected, the Solicitor General knew full well that the direction was to uh, maintain the RCMP. There has been an enormous amount of foot dragging. It's um, been really disappointing that um, we are still waiting. And yes, we're burning through $8 million a month. And that is just uh, that's just unacceptable. Are you accepting, though, what, even if you're frustrated by the lack of any movement in, 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 uh, from the provincial government, are you accepting of their ultimate decision, though, that it, this transition will occur to SPS, or, or are you still of the mind that our Surrey RCMP are best for the city and you, you will still try to find a way to keep the Surrey RCMP? You know, this is not about me. This is not about any... Um, this is not about elected officials anymore. This is now about the taxpayers for the city of Surrey. We want the best police force we can get in Surrey, and we want that now. We want this to uh, to get on with it one way or another. But we do not have the ability, um, as, I, as I was talking about earlier, we do not have all the ability in this. This is not a unilateral thing that the city of Surrey can do. This is something that is really uh, on the backs of the province and the feds to make all those kind of contractual decisions that they have to make. The move forward is not just as simple as people would like it to be. And so um, there are many challenges along the way, and um, we're just trying to get the right information. Certainly, I would hope that the Solicitor General has done his due diligence and is going to be able to provide us that information, but we haven't had any of it. And so right now I want to confirm here, uh, SPS is still moving forward in regards to recruitment uh, and trying to train uh, these new recruits. Uh, They're moving forward in that? They are. um, To some degree, we are able to uh, uh, get, I think, seven seats this September coming up. Um, and, and of course, uh, we signed off on that to, to send those new recruits to the Justice Institute for training. But um, it's not, um, you know, seven is, is pretty small when you look at the size of, uh, of Surrey. What we need is frontline uh, positions filled, and that's, that's the move forward. Have any uh, Surrey RCMP officers in your, uh, from, what, from what you're seeing, patched over to SPS at this point? Um, no, well, certainly not since the decision. Mm-hmm. Um, I understand that way early in the process there were some that uh, went to the SPS, but there hasn't been any in the, in the recent months. And, and I think it goes both ways. I think there's been some... SPS officers that have uh, gone to the RCMP as well. So um, there has been some back and forth. 
What do you want to say to Surrey taxpayers here, uh, or even BC taxpayers who, uh, are, you know, are are providing the hundred and fifty million dollars uh, to your community, or are supposed to be, uh, based on what the government promised? Um, you know, this announcement came down uh, in July. Many people thought, okay, uh, whether they liked it or not, we're going to move forward in this direction. And you're telling me nothing has happened since that day. And at this point, you can't even get basic information, including a feasibility study business plan. And there may not be a business plan at the end of the day either from the provincial government. So at this point, you could be essentially starting like from ground zero at this point. Absolutely. And I think that's um, that's one of the things that if that's where we're at, if the province hasn't got anything they can give us, they haven't aren't able to provide us with that uh, due diligence that I would expect it would take to make the uh, very important decision that Solicitor General made, then absolutely the City of Surrey is going to have to start um, from from ground zero and uh, build it up and make sure that we've uh, covered all our bases and done the kind of impact studies and cost-benefit that we need to do in order to move forward because these are significant um, cost implications for not only your right, our taxpayer and other taxpayers outside of the city of Surrey. So we need to make sure that um, all of the due diligence was done in order to get there, and and we will uh, endeavor to do that. But it is absolutely my hope that the the province had done the good work that they uh, should do to make that kind of a decision. And just to confirm here, beyond the cost of running a municipal police force, which is generally higher than the RCMP, would the $150 million that have been promised be able, would that cover the transition, the one-time costs that that are required for IT, um, you know, a training facility building, land for a training facility, IT capital, as I said, other things, would that $150 million actually cover those costs? Not even close. And, you know, that's a really important question, and that's one of the things that I have asked the province to do since this is their decision, this is their vision, that uh, they indemnify the Surrey taxpayer for all the additional costs. And we we believe it could be three, four times more than the $150 million when you take a look at uh, things like you're talking about. Um, you know, we're also talking about things like Two people per car. That's a different. Uh, that's different in the collective agreement. There's many issues that are going to come up that are going to cost our our residents, our taxpayers, a great deal of money. But they are also going to impact um, other other cities as well. Do you think this could cost instead of the 150 million, well past half a billion dollars for this transition? Never mind the the oh. the, the running the to run the, the 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 police departments. I'm just talking the transition, one-time cost, capital cost, whatever it may be. That instead of 150, this could easily cost uh, BC taxpayers half a billion. You know, I I can't really answer that, um, Jazz. What I can tell you though is that this is a generational decision, and so we know that. Um, it's going to be more than 30. We expect it's going to be closer to 40 or $50 million more, the Delta, every single year. And when you start to compound that, and that's on the operational side, that gets very scary. But that doesn't take into uh, consideration any of uh, the capital costs that you're talking about because those are also extraordinary. IT, you're right, is is very expensive, but there's lots of other um, issues and we haven't seen those budgets come from the uh, 
very pleased service to know exactly what they're looking for at this point. Mayor Locke, uh, we've run out of time. Really appreciate it. I uh, look forward to having you on soon. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jeff. Well, the suspect in a random stabbing that injured three at a Chinatown festival yesterday is a psychiatric patient who had left his facility on a day pass, according to Vancouver police. The attack occurred at uh, Light Up Chinatown, a festival created to help revitalize and preserve one of our city's oldest neighborhoods. Now, preserving Chinatown was one of many promises made by Ken Sim and his ABC colleagues. Next month will mark uh, the day when ABC won its supermajority, which included a promise to hire more police in the city and get the city's fiscal house in order. Now, since then, the residents have already paid a 10.7% property tax increase, and currently council is considering whether they should increase fees for a slew of services, including licensing your dog to licensing your business. Revenue from the hikes uh, would mean an extra $15 million, and it would shave off the equivalent of 1.4% property tax hike in the 2024 budget. Lots to talk about here. Joining me now to discuss the state of the city is Mayor Ken Sim. Mayor uh, Sim, thank you for joining us. Hey, Jazz. Thanks for having me. Uh, I, I could have written, read probably about five pages of uh, other things that, that are on your plate as well. So is the nature of being the mayor of a large city like Vancouver. But let's touch a little bit on what transpired over this weekend. As I said, a suspect um, is in custody. There was a random stabbing at that festival in Chinatown. Uh, and I don't want to focus just on that one event, and, and it was really a, a tough one uh, to, to read about and, and, and to see on the news, but there have been other attacks as well, and Vancouver is not the only city going through some of these challenges, Seattle, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Toronto. Uh, but in your mind, since you've been elected, do you think this city is safer today uh, since you were elected? Yeah, so I, I do want to qualify, you know, I preface with uh, my statement with the fact that, you know, there was something that was absolutely terrible that happened yesterday. And three people were violently assaulted and, um, you know, knock on wood, uh, it looks like uh, you know, they'll make, a, you know, a physical recovery. But the trauma that, uh, you know, not only them, but their family and their friends went through yesterday and will continue to go through is, you know, it's, it's, it's terrible. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's unimaginable. So I, I do want to say that. Um, now, when you look at our city, um, you, you mentioned it, we are a large city now. And anyone telling you that uh, these, you know, we're not going to have more social issues or there won't be crime or there won't be these, uh, be these issues um, would be being very, would be very disingenuous. And so has this place uh, gotten safer? Well, Vancouver, uh, despite the challenges that we face and we will continue to face uh is a relatively safe city, um, but we can do more. Mm-hmm. And so that's why we ran on the mandate of bringing in 100 new police officers and 100 mental health workers, because it's not just uh, policing. We have a, a bunch of social issues that we have to deal with. And I can um, say, you know, we, we've made progress on that file. Um, I believe we've hired to date 94 of those officers, uh, 70 new recruits, 24 officers from dirt different jurisdictions. And so we're, you know, we're making a lot of progress on that file. And I do want to, you know, also state that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, terrible, like these are just, uh, I can't stress how terrible each one of these events are. Um, now, although we, you know, uh, you know, in the short term, we can, we, we won't be able to necessarily reduce these, uh, these incidents. It's how you react um, when they happen. And I can tell you in this one situation, um, you know, we did have uh, police in, in the neighborhood. 
Um, our police officers were able to react really quickly. They um, tended uh, to uh, the individuals affected. They called in um, the incident, and within a couple of like a, a moments later. Um, they picked up the individual and brought him into uh, and no one uh, no one questions that uh mayor sim i think that the challenge here seems to be just the you know there are times where bad guys attack bad guys in this city and generally in canada you don't have to worry about uh not that it didn't happen before but we didn't have to worry about random attacks against uh, everyday law-abiding citizens we just have a lot of them now to the point where it does impact your city's brand downtown vancouver's brand that seems to be the challenge and and, and i'm not saying policing is the only answer it's not but there yep. is a significant challenge i wouldn't would argue vancouver has in regards to just the feeling uh, just the, cha- the, the of feeling safe when you walk downtown in downtown vancouver i think that's the biggest challenge i think you and elected officials like you have is how do you turn that around yeah, and you're absolutely right. And so we, we do have work to do. Um, what we can do is in the short term, um, we can you know um, invest in public safety, which means having a fully funded police uh, service again and have, making sure we have people uh, on the streets. But make no mistake about it, uh, a lot of these challenges, uh, the root causes are outside of the jurisdiction of you know what we do at the city. Where that's not a cop-out, what it, what it is, we are addressing them. We're lobbying um, senior levels of government to help out, um, you know, when it comes to uh, catch and release, uh, for example, when it comes to um, people um, uh, suffering from or not suffering, like experiencing mental health issues. These are, you know, things that uh, we need to do and work with other levels of government to address them so they don't become these issues. This one uh, incident, um, you know, I, I want to be very careful with my words because the investigation isn't over. Mm-hmm. Um, but this this individual was on a day pass um, from, uh, you know, a facility. Yeah. So I don't have the details and I, I do not want to speculate whatsoever. And as the chief mentioned during the press conference, there are so many people that actually um, are on day passes, uh, you know, and, and it, everything's fine. So, like, we're getting into a very complex situation right now. But all I got to say is, we want to get to the root cause of the problem because if we don't, incidents like this are going to be commonplace. Yeah, they and are. That, 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 and that's not that's not an option. Let's focus a little bit on the city budget just for a moment. Uh, you have a budget of just under $2 billion, $1.97 billion, I do believe. Last year, there was a prop- property tax hike of 10.7%. And a budget outlook prepared by the city staff in June warned that Vancouverites could be on the hook for a 9% property tax hike every year for the next five years. Uh, at this point, you and your council are, are looking at and debating and discussing uh, increase in fees of $15 million out of $1.97 billion budget. Uh, number one, can Vancouverites expect a double-digit property tax hike next year, in your mind, number one? Number two, it, with a budget that size, you're the fiscally conservative uh, uh, party you're supposed to be. You're the one who promised to clean up the budget in, in, in spending and spending and bring it in line. Uh, yet here we have uh, Nick, uh, the, the, your ABC council at least looking at nickel and diming Vancouver taxpayers, one could argue, with a $15 million increase in fees. So how do you plan to deal with the fiscal challenges with this city uh, in this current budget cycle? Yeah, so thank you. Um, so there's a few things. One, um, the, the 10.7, that was, when we dug into the budget, that was really a reset. And those were investments in things like, um, you know, getting uh, our police force back to where they uh, should be. It was funding our fire department um, based on bench, uh, benchmarks 
um, from other organizations. So uh, part of that was a reset. And um, the only other thing I'd say there, not that it makes anyone feel better, um, the 10.7, like people have to realize that in our budget, um, a lot of the stuff that we collect money for actually isn't for the city of Vancouver. It's Metro, it's TransLink, uh, it's the provincial school tax. And so when you look at the actual increase on the average condo, it, it turned out to be 33 cents a day. So I, that's just context. What we are doing is we actually have a mayor budget uh, task force of 24 of arguably some of the smartest people in the country that do not work at the city who, uh, who have been given the mandate of rip through all of our financial statements and don't hold back. Tell us what we can do to uh, save money or optimize things. And so they've been working on it for about, what, four or five months now when we're expecting their report. Uh, I'll be as surprised as everyone else because we didn't tell them what they should do or what was, uh, um, you know, w- 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 what the sacred cows were. We just said, just go nuts. But, so, but will you, will you, does your council have the spine to make cuts? And that's the question here. We can all talk about needs. There are always going to be needs, and the demand to spend is always there in government. It always will be. But do you, as a council and as mayor, uh, you know, have the fortitude to say, we're going to make some cuts because we cannot continue spending and spending? There, have to be, there has to be some belt tightening, one would argue. Absolutely, and that's the great thing about bringing in a bunch of um, incredibly bright people that are independent of us, and we told them, don't hold back. When that report comes out, we literally have to go to the city. If they come up with recommendations that say we should be doing this, and then we don't have a valid reason why we shouldn't do it, um, you know, people are going to hold us accountable, and that's the way it should be, and I, I look forward to it. Okay. It's going to be great. Well, speaking of holding folks accountable, folks, I could have, I could have you know, 20 more questions, but I want to hand it over to our listeners. Give us a call right now. The mayor wants to take some calls from you to answer some of your questions. Welcome back to the show. If you're just joining us, we are speaking to Vancouver Mayor Ken Sim. Give us a call on the open line. He is taking questions from Vancouver residents. Let's go to Ryan in Vancouver. Hi, Ryan. Hi, Jazz. So I wanted to bring up quickly the multiplexing in context. So there's a vote coming this week uh, on council on the multiplex proposal that council estimates will have 150 uh, up units uptake per year, which I think is an insult. So in that context, when are we going to get zoning reform and actually get housing built? Thanks, Ryan. Uh, your worship? Yeah. So um, let's be very clear. Um, and we ran on this mandate. We want to build... Uh, a lot more and a lot faster and so we're working through a bunch of different things right now that the bottleneck that we've identified make no mistake about it is it takes us way long to get permits to build stuff be it a simple reno building a single family home multiplexes or um, condos and uh, so we skip that process um, we can build a lot more faster uh, across the city. And I think we've been pretty bold. I think we've told everyone, look, we don't have a, a shadow crisis in our city. We don't have a view cone uh, crisis in our city. We have a housing crisis. Mm-hmm. And we've been very clear, look, we want to build a lot more, be it on above subways. It's completely ridiculous that we, um, you know, we're not optimizing our uh, transit node. We started to speed up some of these processes, and, you know, I can get into the weeds a little bit more, but... Uh, you know, those are my general comments. All right. Well, let's go to uh, Joe in Vancouver. Hi, Joe. Hi. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. All right. There's there's two points here. Um, I can't afford to live in the city of Vancouver, but I had a business, had a business which I had to shut down uh, in Vancouver. It was on Broadway. 
but I paid forty, fifty thousand dollars in taxes. But because I couldn't afford to live in Vancouver, I had to live outside the parameters of Vancouver. I couldn't vote for you the first time you ran and you lost. I put your uh, materials and, and, and information in my store. Second time you ran, I did what I could because I needed some change. I needed somebody else in there with a head on their shoulders. But it's unbelievable that I could pay that kind of taxes and I still don't get to vote. And number two is that the something has to be done with these commercial landlords, uh, retail landlords, that are passing all of the taxes and all the tax increases onto us as retailers with no controls. Thank you. Mayor, same your thoughts on that. I mean, it's, it's a constant challenge. It is an expensive city, uh, but it's really, really tough, of course, for small business owners. Your thoughts? Yeah, no, it, look, it, I totally empathize um, with the caller, so I didn't catch his name. And he's right. Um, it is, it, it is uh, very expensive to live in the city. Let's call it what it is. When the average uh, you know, apartment is over $3,000 for a one-bedroom apartment, um, that's that's not affordable to a lot of people. And then when our businesses are paying forty to $50,000 in property taxes just, you know, for, let's say, 12, 1,400 square feet in certain areas, you know, um, it's hard for businesses to survive and they have to pass their uh, these costs on to consumers. So uh, that's what we ran on. Um, you know, uh, there aren't going to be any short fixes, um, mm-hmm. but we have to start working on building. And it goes back to the last uh, uh, caller's comments. We have to build more housing faster. We have to stop having these conversations around, well, um, do we really need the housing um, or if there's, you know, a supply-demand um, debate. That that debate's over. We need to build more faster and we're going to do that. And if we do that, that starts to, you know, provide more units out there so more people can live. It mm-hmm. should provide more attainability and it should help our businesses as well. First, it spreads out the tax base. So, um, you know, you, you spread the, ta- the task tax cost over more businesses and businesses and residents, but also you have more residents living in the neighborhood who can frequent these businesses. Yeah. All right. Well, let's go to George in Vancouver. Hi, George. Hi, George. Uh, Jay, uh, Jeff. Excellent program as usual, by the way. Um, Mr. Mayor, uh, since you have this group of people working on recommendations to cut costs, and that supposedly, as I hear, is coming out in October, why are you bringing in tomorrow a motion to increase all these fees to gain $15 million extra uh, when you could wait until that report is out and maybe we don't have to increase these fees? Yeah. So thank you, George. That's, uh, that's actually uh, a great question. Um, so these recommendations, um, to give you a little color as to how um, the, the inner workings of the city uh, works, is uh, the city manager and their team, they present uh, options. And so those options were based on surveys um, uh, when they polled residents, and um, a lot of residents uh, you know, expressed uh, that uh, property taxes um, you know, have been presenting a big challenge and they would rather see, you know, more user fees. And so these are presented to council, then we get to debate them, and then we get to either accept them, uh, modify them, uh, or say, no, we're not going to do it. And so we approach this, like, you know, when we go into council this week, we approach these uh, conversations with an open mind, um, and then we'll make our decision then. 
In addition to that, we do have the uh, Mayor's Budget Task Force uh, that have been working on this for a while, and we're really excited to see uh, what they're going to have to say, because like I said, they are some of the smartest people in the country. Well, I, uh, I wish we had more time here. We've run out. I really appreciate you uh, taking calls today. I hope to have you on soon. I think that we're going to try to do this on a semi-regular basis to take calls from citizens. Really appreciate you making the effort to do so today. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Jez. Today, the provincial government said it set the maximum allowable rent increase for 2024 at 3.5%, which is below the inflation rate. Uh, In a statement today, the BC government said that the rent cap is well below the 12-month average inflation rate of 5.6%, and it applies to rent increases uh, effective uh, January 1st of 2024. Uh, that any landlord who wants to increase rent must provide three months' notice to tenants, and rent can only be increased once every 12 months. Now, before 2018, the annual allowable rent increase was based on the inflation rate plus 2%. Uh, So that 2% uh, is now gone. And in this case, it's below the inflation rate. Uh, Joining me now to talk a little bit about these uh, yearly announcements and increases uh, is David Hutniak. He's the CEO of Landlord BC. David, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. So, uh, once again, uh, 3.5% uh, increase, uh, but the inflation rate was 5.6%. This is, of course, the first time, as I said, that this has happened. Give me a sense of what you, your uh, association and landlords, uh, think of this type of yearly announcement from government. Yeah, I mean, needless to say, it's it's problematic. Uh, you know, certainly, I, I guess uh, we're encouraged that uh, you know the province did say that they uh, the intention is to move to uh, CPI, the formula that's in the Residential Tenancy Act, going forward. But certainly, you know, in the context of the past uh, well six years now, if we include 2024, but. Uh, you know, through 2022, uh, 2023, pardon me, you know, we we saw basically zero, zero, uh, 1.5, 2% and, uh, and uh, that was uh, uh, kind of the, the extent of it. And so the, you know, the five-year average uh, of the allowable rent increase from 2018 through 2022 was uh, 2.52%. And in that same period of time, we just did, uh, you know, a study on 38 uh, purpose-built rental buildings. Um, And these are um, basically built between 1965 and uh, 1990. So it's kind of the, you know, the prime apartment buildings that uh, we see all over the place. Mm -hmm. And and during that same, same period of time, uh, the expenses went up 38.2%. So, you know, there's a pretty significant significant gap there. And, and you know, we look at, uh, and, and for these properties, insurance went up during that five-year period, 158%. Water and sewer, 13.9%. Natural gas, 70%. Waste removal, 49%. Uh, repair and maintenance, 50%. I mean, you know, these these are real numbers. And, and and we're also in an environment, uh, Jazz, where, you know, because of such a shortage of supply, so many people moving here, they're primarily renters, so there's mm-hmm. no no rental housing. And so there's no turnover. There's no one leaving these units. So it's 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 just a, it's just a really challenging situation. And, 
and while, like I said, while you know I, we are extremely sensitive to the challenges renters are having, it is awful for renters right now. And and the the, the minister and, and the premier talk about balance, and you know that's that's a sentiment that we share. But uh, there needs to be balance. But the reality is, and, and I've you know presented this to the government on numerous occasions that that uh, you know they want to help renters and they should and they actually have done some really good things but they can't keep trying to help renters on at the expense or or on the backs of landlords they keep harming us mm-hmm. that's well, just not sustainable but what about those who do have an open uh, an available an apartment or a condo and they want to rent it out you know the average rents are three thousand dollars a month so you do get to reset once a tenant moves out i know you can't do it in the middle of it, except for that one increase, the government says this is your maximum once a year. This is what you can do, and I get that. But at the same time, we have to acknowledge uh, one bedroom apartments going for three thousand dollars a month is hardly probably reflective, uh, and in many cases, very difficult on Vancouver salaries to pay. So, I mean, what uh, well, do you absolutely, do here? Uh, absolutely, I don't disagree with you at all. I'm, I'm, I, as I'm saying, we're very sensitive to the challenges renters are facing. Mm-hmm. The you know, but in terms of the broader market. Uh, the, 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 because there's no place for renters to go, like I said, turnover rate in Vancouver right now, I think the last stat we saw was 4%. A typical uh, turnover rate is like you know, 15 to 25%. So there's just nothing becoming available. So these, those opportunities for the majority of the rental universe to uh, increase rents on turnover are, are far and few between. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's, I guess that's good for existing renters. It's, uh, it's certainly not good for new renters coming in because they have no place to, they can't find homes. And, and it has huge negative impacts in terms of the broader sector. The other thing is just r- real quickly, I mean, some of these numbers that are being published in the media are from, and, and, you know, I don't really have any you know, relationships with any of these marketing portals, but it, a lot of the numbers that they're, they're uh, quoting are, are for condos. Condos have always been, you know, 25 to 35% uh, higher in terms of rent than purpose-built rental buildings. So, mm-hmm. so there's some skewing of the numbers. And when we look at in-place rents right now, you know, a one-bedroom in Vancouver mm-hmm. is about $1,400 a month. A one-bedroom apartment is 1400 a month? Absolutely. In terms of in-place rent, we're, we're basically we're seeing literally zero turnover. That's what a lot of people are paying for a one-bedroom right now, if not less. Um, do you, a lot of folks have said, look, these, folk, with these places that are available for rent, uh, in many cases, are local investors who rent, you know, who put some money together, buy a condominium and rent it out and they pay their mortgage with the, with the condo, uh, with the rent every month. Um, Mm -hmm. Do you think this is going to uh, take away that local investor who is willing to buy a condominium and rent it out and make it part of the rental pool? Do you think more and more investors say, wait a minute, the numbers don't work anymore, that I'm just not going to be in that, in, in that type of investment anymore? Well, I could totally understand them taking that attitude. I mean, they can put their money into a GIC and get 6% for five years. So no risk, no liability. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that you know, I, I think more and more of those folks are, are weighing that. And, and uh, so, you know, it's unfortunate, but, you know, this is, this is the reality. Um, you know, certainly we are, you know, historically, and I, I know you and I have talked before, you, you know how dependent upon the secondary market we are in British Columbia. And that's not just Vancouver, that's all over the place. 
And so, so you know, we need we need that second uh, secondary market to be healthy. We need uh, these uh, these investors who are you know buying these units and placing them in the rental pool. We we need them to continue doing that because we're not building. Uh, enough purposeful built rental anywhere anywhere near what we need, so so it's you know it's a hugely challenging situation. You know I'm I'm not unsympathetic to the provincial government and the challenges they face. This is a problem that's been brewing for 30 plus years, and but now you know it, it's just reached uh, a point here where we need really. Uh, you know, sort of bold measures, and 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 part of that, a significant part of that bold measure, is to ensure that you know landlords aren't forgotten in this in this whole conversation. That you know, they they want us to do deep energy retrofits and electrify, do ele- electrification on, on all these old buildings. Well, well that costs. Those are complex uh, investments and and very very expensive. Mm-hmm. You know, we need incentives and support around there. And there's a whole lot of things they can do that would, you know, not uh, result in additional costs for renters. But basically, you know, we need to start looking at a broader tax base to support this sector, which is hugely important, not just for housing, but for the entire economy. I mean, our economic growth. Is, is going to be stunted by the fact that we can't provide housing for people yeah. coming here. David, uh, lots to talk about. Hope to have you on, on the show again. Thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, thanks, Jess. For just joining us, we were speaking to David Hutniak, CEO of Landlord BC. Uh, he was, of course, responding to us in regards to announcement today by the provincial government, uh, which has set the maximum allowable rent increase for 2024 at 3.5%, which is below the 12-month average for inflation, which is 5 6 uh, 5.6%. And so the 3.5% increase basically uh, applies to all rent increases effective January 1st, 2024. Uh, landlords have basically said, look, with inflation um, the way it's been, uh, they have uh, been given the, these rate hikes that are below the inflation rate. And during COVID, there was a rent increase freeze that was put in place as well. And then, of course, the province capped rent increases at 2%, which, are, which were well below the 5.4% inflation rate uh, as well. Now, previous to the NDP getting in, the annual allowable rent increase was based on the inflation rate plus 2%. Now, if you're a renter, uh, where the average rent, we are told in some surveys, says it's close to $3,000 per month for a one-bedroom apartment, uh, you know, even a, a 3.5% rent increase is significant. Joining me now is our Jerry Mayor Judson. Um, I know we talked to the landlords. Yes, they have a perspective. They I do. have some sympathy for them in regards to the supply of rentals and the fact that they do invest, but you still got to pay your rent. And there's a lot of folks in this city uh, who probably don't uh, are already having challenges. And and, then you've talked to some of those folks today. Yes. Yeah. Today I uh, did get to chat with the new, sorry, the leader in the uh, Acorn Association, well, it's the Association of Community Organizations for Reform. Now they deal with a lot of like tenancy, advocacy, sort of residential stuff. Mm -hmm. And uh, he's a leader for New West. His name is Gary Rodden. So I chatted with him about what he thinks about the 3.5% rent increase from the renter's perspective. 
3.5% sounds reasonable, but unfortunately, there are loopholes in BC rent controls that allow landlords to raise rents much more than 3.5%. Uh, one example is a voluntary rent increase. I don't know if you know what a voluntary rent increase is. Um, is that when the landlord says, like, do they not have to ask your permission, I guess? Yes, your landlord comes to you and asks you for to voluntarily raise your rent. So if the rent increase is, say, 2%, as it was last year, your landlord can come to you and ask you for, say, an extra two hundred dollars a month that might be a, a 10 or 20 percent increase so you have the right to uh, agree to it or not in my building uh, the landlord approached uh, long, the long-term tenants in the, in the building and asked them for a, a voluntary rent increase about half of them agreed and half of them didn't agree the point is that with the with the uh, housing crisis in bc and and rental vacancy rates in vancouver at almost zero and rent skyrocketing a lot of people feel compelled to agree to this voluntary rent increase despite the fact that it's supposed to be voluntary in reality it isn't in a rent in a housing crisis yeah for sure it sort of could feel maybe more like you're doing it under duress a little bit because well if I don't agree to this rent increase and then my landlord all of a sudden has a child that they want to move into my apartment or whatever like there's there's ways you're saying for landlords to get around this uh, supposedly exactly. okay exactly the, you just mentioned what an, another loophole which is the landlord uh, use loophole your your landlord can give you an, an eviction in order to move in a member of his, of his family and you get two months notice to move out and uh, you have to move out unless you dispute it at the residential tenancy branch right and to do that the onus is on you the person who got evicted to either look for a listing that your landlord put up and it's uh almost aimed to make it more of a headache for you the renter with a rent increase of two percent or three and a half percent it's in the interest of the landlord to try and get rid of the long-term tenants if a long-term tenant moves out of the apartment and then the landlord rents it to a new tenant he can raise the rent 20 percent 50 percent or 100 percent clearly everyone sort of on both sides is suffering economically and and but the, but one side has, I would say, yeah, like a lot more power in the situation than the other. Exactly. Especially in a housing crisis, the landlord obviously has a lot of power. If the rental vacancy rate in Metro Vancouver is almost zero and rents are skyrocketing, then tenants are going to be very anxious and very scared, which is why some agree to voluntary rent increases because they're afraid. British Columbia has got the highest eviction rate in Canada. Oh, really? And all 85% of all evictions in BC are no fault. In other words, the tenant has not done anything wrong. This is based on a study that was done by UBC, and we have the highest eviction rate in Canada, three times what it is in Alberta, for example, and double what it is in Ontario. That is just a new and unique way to see that the rental market here is great. Well, thank you. <laughs> I sound you. like a renter. <laughs> I have a lot of renter rage, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're not the only one. <laughs> Renter rage. Renter rage. I think yeah. you used that term before I think in the I have, office. Because I have a lot of it, Jazz. <laughs> I know. It's uh, is it, and, and I get the increase. Is it just a little deeper than beyond just the rent increase? Is it the fact that the way the rules are set up, and I'm talking about real estate. I mean, just life, mm -hmm. the way the city runs, the region runs. That it's just not fair. People who work hard, pay their bills, uh, you know, pay their taxes, and you can't get ahead. I mean, uh, yeah, a little bit. I think uh, it's not as bad as I had expected the potential rent increase to be. Mm -hmm. um, but, like, I don't know. I just think that, like, even if it's I, – I think it's a cost of doing business. I think that there's – that that is the risk that is involved in this, like, government-propped-up investment is that – 
okay, well, you have to, you're at the whim of what the government wants to do versus what the market wants to do. And I just think that if you get free equity, regardless whether or not you make money on, on your properties that you invest in, I just think that, uh, yeah, I don't know. I will. So, but how do you deal with that? So let's say I'll play landlord and okay. I, I've, I've invested in this property, put a down payment on, and I know what my monthly mortgage payments are going to be, my strata fees, my insurance, everything. Mm-hmm. I'm going to rent it or try to rent it close to breaking even yep. or a small profit, whatever the market will allow. Sure. But now the last two or three years or four years, I've had rent freezes. Um, you know, I am and my tenant's still there, so I've been mm-hmm. able to increase rents mm-hmm. uh, as much as I would like. What do you do with that? Do you think that person just he they should just eat the cost there and live with it? I mean, my worry is I know mm-hmm. it's not the sexiest thing to say, the right thing to say, but you lose some of these local investors. They're out yeah. of the market. Oh, yeah. So that's a pool of re- the rental pool uh, gets smaller, number it, one. Yes, this, it hurts and, abundance. Yeah, yes. and the government, like I said, peaked in building houses in this country in the early 1970s. Now, I think we put enough pressure collectively in society saying, let's get focused again and we'll get there, although it's hard to get labor to do all this stuff. Mm-hmm. It'll get there, but it doesn't help... Uh, Jerry today, does it? No, certainly not. The problem exactly was 50 years ago. The problem was not ensuring abundance. And the problem is like, like uh, the guest was saying, like um, about turnaround. Yeah, there's no turnaround anymore because everyone's terrified to to leave and look for something else. It, it creates like this, this, this thing that the government just stopped doing 50 years ago. It's created a hostility between, between renters and landlords. It's created a lot of fear on both ends. And uh, it just... You know, it could have been avoided. It could have been avoided at so many points. And at every single opportunity, the the, the powers that be said, no, we're fine. It's yeah. fine. The market's doing its thing. It's fine. And uh, now it's bloated, awful, and terrible, and everybody hates each other. That's part of the problem, especially in the provincial and federal level, is most elected officials are homeowners. Yes. Right? Not just one home, maybe two or three. Oh, yeah. Maybe I, some of them are landlords. There's a directory you can look yeah. up, actually. Oh, yeah. Of course. <laughs> no, no, no. There's, there's no doubt. And I'm not just saying it's a boomer thing. It's a Gen X thing as oh, well, yeah. right? Oh, for so, sure. And probably a, a few millennials. Who were able oh, to get some the elder millennials who were yeah. able to like right in there. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, must be nice. So uh, we're talking to our Jerry Mary Judson. Uh, <laughs> we want to get a perspective from from renters as well. We did speak to landlord BC. Give me a call on the open line, and Jerry and I are here. We want to talk a little bit about this issue that the fact that the provincial government has come out and said, look, three and a half percent is what your rent increase can be next year. That is still below the 12 month inflation average of 5.6%. Um, and as I've said before, there was a COVID rent freeze. Increases have been around 2%. Landlords said, how do you get ahead in this? You, you know, the costs have gone up significantly. Call me on the open line. I want to hear from renters. I want to hear from landlords as well. I'm speaking to Jerry Mayor Judson, our contributor. We're talking a little bit about the province today, uh, setting the maximum allowable rent increase for 2024 at 3.5%, which is a lot for folks. And I I totally understand that, but it's below the inflation rate. rate. Landlords have said the 12-month average inflation rate um, is at 5.6%, and they're only able to uh, increase... um, uh, rents by 3.5% in 2024. Uh, before 2018, the annual allowable rent increase was based on the inflation rate plus 2%. So the 2% is now gone. Uh, and just so you know that during COVID-19, there was a rent increase freeze that was put into place. Then the province capped ranking rent increases to 2%, and certainly well below the 5.4% inflation rate. So this has been going on for, well, five, six years now. And landlords are getting very frustrated. They say, look, it's not covering their costs. At the same time, uh, you know, renters will tell you, you know, the average one-bedroom in Vancouver proper is now at $3,000 
uh, per month. So give me a call, whether you're a landlord or a renter, 604-280-9898. That's 604-280-9898. Star 9898 on your cell phone. Let's go to the open lines. Let's go to Mario in Surrey. Hi, Mario. Hey, Mario. Uh, hey, uh, Jaws. Is that me? Yes. Yes, it is. What's on your mind? Okay. Well, um, I'm an immigrant. I don't know if you can tell from my accent. But anyway, I came here in the 80s, and I, I believe me, I do feel for the renters and, and for, like, the newcomers. But mm-hmm. I came to this country with $2,000 in my pocket, and right away at 22 years old, I was lucky or smart or a little bit of both to invest in, in a house. I bought a house in Burnaby for $85,000. So, of course, people say, oh, yeah, you're lucky because houses were cheap back then. But some people, they look at me with, you know, if I had two heads, it's like, why are you buying a house, blah, blah, blah. So my point is, you know, if I was able to do it, anybody back then could have been able to do it. But mm-hmm. Let's let's flip the coin here. So, like, let's say you're an investor and you have a million and a half dollar, and and you want to buy a house in Burnaby. Let, never mind Vancouver. Vancouver's out of reach. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just doesn't like uh, even a house in Burnaby for three bedroom. You're not going to be able to rent it for more than three to four thousand dollars, maybe five thousand dollars. And if you do the math, even with if you had money cash, you don't have to. Uh, pay for mortgage, your return is it's pretty dismal. So it, I don't know whose fault it is. If it's the government, it's the economy. It's super hot. The real estate is very hot. Uh, th- it's, there's no incentive. And on top of the, like your denou- announcement from the BC government saying that they basically uh, freeze the, the rent increase, uh, there's no incentive for the private sector unless you're mega billionaire like some of these developer yeah mario uh, there's, I get, no, there's, you, there's I get, no there's no investor for for the little guy like me to to buy a house or a condo mm-hmm. and and like even a, let's say a condo in 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 burnaby and u.s same example let's say if you find one for for five hundred thousand and i don't know where they got this number one bedroom for three thousand you're not going to be able to to rent it for three thousand you rent it for maybe 2000. The math just doesn't work. And you don't have to be a brain surgeon to understand. Yeah, Mario, I got your call. I got your point. Thank you for your call. Uh, And that's the point I was trying to make is if you're going to rely on local investors uh, to uh, increase supply, uh, the math doesn't work. That's you're absolutely right. Uh, You know, one would argue that with an average salary, it wasn't easy uh, in the 80s to buy a home. Uh, In fact, uh, you know, interest rates did go up significantly at one point. But an average salary today, forget about it. So I think there is a difference. You weren't going to buy a house in Burnaby uh, today on an average salary, having just arrived as an immigrant. Uh, And yes, it's only 85,000 and you were paid less back then. And I understand that as well. But I think the the, uh, homes have just gotten away from the average British Columbian who was making average salaries. That's part of the issue. You're right about uh, local investors. That's part of the problem. That's why government has to get involved and make it easier, as we did in the 70s and 80s. When we, if you look at all the, you know, these rental homes that you see along Oak and Camby and some of these other places, purpose-built rental, the government got involved in the rental business. At its peak at one point, all the rental properties built in this country, 24% were, were uh, financed or in some way, directly or indirectly, by the federal government. 
We got away from that in the 80s. And when we were fighting and limiting the deficit in the 1990s, we got away from affordable housing. So this didn't happen today. It didn't happen under the NDP. It didn't happen to the BC Liberals either. It, it got worse under them because it was a slow build. But this is a 20-year slow march that we've got ourselves into this problem. Now, add demographics to that. What I mean by that is we have an aging society. We don't have enough workers. I want to build this. I want to build that. Where are you going to get the construction workers from? So that's part of the challenge uh, as well. So I appreciate your call. Uh, let's go to Jimmy in Surrey. Hi, Jimmy. Yeah, Jess, thanks. Uh, you mentioned the immigrants uh, not being able to afford a house in Vancouver. You know, the immigrants that bust their butt and they do buy property. Mm-hmm. I've been watching it for the last 30 years. You know, you got uh, you and I are from the same demographic. Yep. The interesting thing here is, since when do people with average incomes, when are they entitled to live in Vancouver, the one of the most expensive cities in the world, and the most beautiful? See, on one side, they pump up the city, like it's, you know, like the, the, the heaven on paradise and all that kind of stuff. And then you expect to have an uh, average salary? No, it doesn't work that way. You're not entitled. It's a certain group that always feels that they're entitled. You know, I want a fancy Cadillac, but I can't. You know why? Because i got three kids. i got other priorities. Yeah. And there's plenty of condos around every SkyTrain station. You know the thousands of towers of your uh, condos. Of your, let's move out. Yeah, and there, there, you do have a point. I mean, I, I think people also don't want I mean, Jerry, jump in here. Uh, the Gen X is talking too much here. But jump in. But the reality is, uh, you know, some folks don't want to spend an hour and a half on a commute every day from the burbs, right? I mean, I, I, I like driving. I'm okay with it, but... That's why you want to live in the city too, Even right? Even the burbs are inaccessible right now. Average home price in like Chilliwack is like I close to six, like sorry, close to seven figures. It's uh, and and then for, and then for the for the price of commuting into the city, where like I could get a job is why I moved to Vancouver. I don't think that I think the average what salary in British Columbia seventy seven thousand dollars annually. Yeah, I don't think that's too big of an ask to like qualify for a mortgage. I understand it's not like it's not like the people making average salaries are just throwing the money left, right, and center, but like they're yeah. and they're not saving. It's not. It's not like that at all. Lattes, yeah. Exactly. It's not yeah. like that at all. It's just we're the wages are also a problem, and I'll go on a diatribe about that later. But I, I do agree with uh, Jimmy, though. You are not. You're, you don't have a right to live next door to your parents. As much as I'd like no. to believe that, I like. I, I look at my son. I go. It's going to be a lot different for you, kid. It, and it wasn't easy for me, but it wasn't easy for a lot of folks. But it's just different. It's a different city, and we're adding another million people by 2050. So there is going to be a need for more housing, but you're going to be fighting for that housing uh, as well. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.